All right, good evening everyone. As you take your seat in the room, I want to take a moment to welcome you all once again to church, those of you watching online. If you're new or newer here, my name is Brian Howard. I'm the teaching pastor here, and I'm thrilled to jump into a new teaching series with you tonight. If you've got a Bible with you, and I hope you do either on your phone or a hard copy, I want you to turn to the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Now, if I say Habakkuk and you have no idea where that is in the Bible, I want to give you a little pro tip for the Christian faith. Anytime you open Open your Bible. It is okay when you look at your Holy Bible to turn to the Holy Table of Contents, okay? And if you don't know where it is, just go there, find the number. There's no shame there. We're going to start off in this book of the Bible called Habakkuk tonight. And my assumption is for most of you, maybe almost all of you, this is not a book you spend a significant amount of time in. I want to introduce this book to you tonight. And what we've got for you is a video from our friends over at the Bible Project that will help you understand this book of Habakkuk. Check out the screens and see this video now. The book of the prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt, they're more violent, they've deified their own military power, they treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. 
So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice, and so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now, the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the Creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become, and he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. 
And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. Welcome to church, everyone. Today's Bible passage is out of Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 4. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help, and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing, and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective, and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Right on. Thank you, Allie, for sharing the scripture tonight. And for, yeah, thank you, Allie. We really appreciate it. And um, man, I hope that video just gave you an intro, a taste of what Habakkuk is all about. Again, I just assume for many of you, this hasn't really been something you, you've spent a lot of time in. And maybe you have, uh, but if you haven't, I hope this is an encouragement and a blessing to you as we walk through it slowly, three chapters over the next three weeks. So again, Habakkuk chapter one, if you've got your Bible with you, if you don't own a Bible, um, come see us. We'd love to just give you one for free as our gift tonight, but it'll be up here on the screen as well. It begins this way. Habakkuk chapter one, verse one says, the prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. So this is how it begins. It says the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. And so I want to talk for just a moment, kind of setting up what prophecy and what Habakkuk and what this is all about. Because again, if you've not been familiar with this part of the scripture, you're going to get kind of confused over who the minor prophets are and what they do uh, and what this whole part of the Bible is all about. So let me give you a brief introduction for those of you who are new or newer to the Bible. Uh, I think tonight when we look at the minor prophets, when we look at Habakkuk, I want to try to answer three questions. And here's the first question. First question is, what is prophecy? Like, what is prophecy about? Why, why are we caring about a prophetic book? What does that mean in the Bible? The second are, who are the minor prophets? I've mentioned that Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets, and we'll answer that question. And number three, maybe the most important question for us tonight, is why does this have any, or why does any of this matter to us today? Uh, like, in other words, why would we spend three weeks of our time in the book of Habakkuk? And I hope tonight I can begin to answer that question for you as we dive into the first chapter. So the first question we're answering is this one. What is prophecy? Let me put it this way. Um, biblical prophets, I want to be clear, biblical prophets sometimes predicted the future. So when you see prophecy, I think for you and me, we immediately jump to people who predict the future. You're a prophet. You knew who was going to win the game next week. You knew who was going to be elected president. You knew what was going to happen in the future. It was prophetic. And I believe that's true from time to time in the Bible. There are times where the prophets predict that something's going to happen within the next few years, the next few days, the next few decades, or in the time long in the future. So the prophets sometimes predicted the future. But I want to clarify something for you tonight. Prophecy is not entirely about predicting the future. So when we talk about the Old Testament prophets, you'll read through the books of prophecy in the Old Testament and you'll realize that sometimes the prophets are predicting the future, but the biblical prophets are always declaring this phrase, thus saith the Lord. Now, we don't use the phrase saith anymore, right? Unless you're trying to be cute with someone, right? Uh, but that's the old, new, like the King James Version where it was thus says the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. In other words, if you want to know what prophecy is technically, 
It is a human being saying, this is what God said to me, and I am communicating it to you. God has a message for you that he's delivering through me. And that's what the prophets are in the Old Testament. Sometimes that message, thus saith the Lord, is about something that's coming in the future. But more often than not for the prophets, it's not something that's happening in the future. It's something that God has to say about the way the world is operating now. So this is what prophecy is all about. This is all about God speaking through the prophet to the people of Israel. Here's the second question we were going to work with. Who are these minor prophets? So if you look in the Bible, you'll see there's four major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. They're called major prophets, not because they're more important, not because they're more central to the biblical storyline, but because they're longer books. That's really it. If you read especially Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, they're these massive books in the Old Testament. And then in contrast to these really big books, you have these minor prophets. And minor doesn't mean less important, it just means shorter. So Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, our book tonight, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the minor prophets. So when we speak of minor prophets, we're not talking about unimportant parts of scripture. We're just talking about the shorter prophetic books, the 12 of them, that we find in the Old Testament. And then finally, we're going to try to answer the question, what does any of this have to do with us today? And my contention is that when we look at the prophetic books in the Old Testament, it helps us answer three questions. Number one, it answers a question about God's character. Who is this God and what is he like? Like, especially if you're new or newer to church and you haven't been to church in a long time, I think the prophetic books help us understand who is God and what is he like? What are his attributes? What's his nature and his character? What kind of God are we talking about here? The next is it helps us understand God's action. Like, what does God do? How does God work? What types of things does God do in the world? And even tonight, we're going to see something that might actually surprise you about our God that he does in the midst of the world. How does God work? And then finally, the prophets help us understand God's heart. What does God care about? The prophets help us understand this question. What does God love? What does God hate? What is God against? What is God for? And that's what we're going to see when we work through this book of Habakkuk for three weeks. We're going to see these questions answered. Who is this God and how does he work and what does he care about? Habakkuk chapter 1 introduces that it's prophecy of Habakkuk, the prophet of what he received. It jumps into verse 2 and what we're going to see is Habakkuk's complaint. You saw this in the video. Habakkuk has a complaint. He is crying out to God. He's got some problems with what's going on in the world. And I want you to listen closely to these verses that Ali just read. Verse 2, it says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. So in other words, the book of Habakkuk begins in an odd kind of way. It doesn't begin with God speaking. It actually begins with Habakkuk speaking. And he's complaining to God. He's crying out to God. He's got some problems with the way the world is going. And I want to lay out Habakkuk's complaint in four different parts. Here's how it begins. Number one, there's violence everywhere. He's looking around the world. He's looking around the nation of Israel. And he's going, there is violence going on everywhere I look. Number two, 
He notices that the culture is marked by conflict. Even when there's not physical violence, there's tension and there's anger and there's division and hostility going on in the culture. Number three, he says this, that the law is paralyzed, which is an ancient Bible way of saying the law is the Bible, and it's not being loved, it's not being followed. In other words, the Bible, the teaching of the Bible is being ignored. And then finally, the fourth part of his complaint is that the leaders are corrupt. He looks at the leadership of his nation, he looks at the leaders of the world, and goes, they are corrupt. So again, let me run through these. There's violence everywhere. There's conflict and tension and heated division everywhere. People are ignoring the words of the Bible and the leaders in the nation are corrupt. And here's my question for you tonight. Anyone recognize that world? Like anyone here look at that and realize that that might actually be scary similar to our world today? Uh, Again, this impression we get sometimes is like the ancient world was full of silly backwards people who didn't know what was going on, but we in the modern world have figured it out, that we're special, that we're smarter, that we're better. And then I look at this list and I go, this is us. Like this really isn't that different than us. I look around our world, our culture today, and there's violence everywhere. There's violence in streets, there's violence in the school, there's violence in the home, There's violence in the womb. There's violence against children. Listen, I've worked with teenagers at this church for a decade or more. There's violence against teenagers in this church from their parents. There's school shootings. There's terrorists attacked. There's wars. There's genocides going on all over the world. If somehow you have been convinced that the modern world is this peaceful paradise, it's only because you live in a bubble and have not seen the world as it actually is. There's violence everywhere. We live in a violent world. Culture. The culture is marked by conflict. I don't even have to think I convince, I don't have to convince you of this, right? Like if you own any social media account of any kind, like check, right? That's what it is. It's conflict and anger and division and no one gets along and everyone hates everyone else and everyone's suspicious of everyone else. The Bible is being ignored. Like, like, like there's so many things in our culture that I just look around and go, if people would listen to the Bible and heed the Bible and submit their lives to the Bible, we wouldn't be struggling with this. And it's not that I want to force everyone to obey the Bible. It's just that I'm certain that we have just kind of abandoned the idea that there's any kind of morality we have to live up to. And that is bearing fruit in our culture. And then finally, the leaders are corrupt. And listen, if you're some kind of like hardcore partisan on one side or the other, you're like, yeah, the other side's leaders are corrupt. So are yours, Okay. They all are. Like there's just corrupt leadership in our land, in our world, in our nation, everywhere we look, there are corrupt leaders. And so again, I'm so tempted sometimes to think the world of the Bible is so dissimilar to our world. And then I just think through it for just a minute and I go, no, our world is this kind of world. And let's just be honest here. Like we planned this teaching series to land on like this week a year ago. Like isn't this the week where we look around the world and realize how jacked up things are? Like all of us have just been watching images like this just flow through our televisions or our phones lately from Afghanistan. Just the chaos of planes trying to take off and people clinging to planes. Today I'm seeing videos of people taking their babies, of which I have three of them, and just like handing them to soldiers just trying to get them out of the country. You see the chaos in that country. You see the pain. You see the ache. You see the fear in their eyes. And you recognize how much violence abounds in our day. And here's the prophet Habakkuk just going, God, why would you allow this? And this is one of these cases of like human beings inflicting violence on each other. But then you can even expand that to things that no one is at fault for. 
Like, like just last week in Haiti, we see this earthquake that's bringing down buildings and thousands of people have died and countless more have been dislocated. Like, listen, we live in a world filled with violence, filled with pain. We live in a world that has been wrecked, wrecked by evil. And if at any point in the last couple of years, maybe during the pandemic, maybe during the political chaos, maybe during the racial strife, maybe during the civil unrest, you've looked around and gone, how long is this going to last, Lord? You know exactly how Habakkuk feels. You know exactly what he's going through. Like in other words, Habakkuk has this complaint that I put in four parts. Then he has two questions he asked. And I hope you notice, here's the first question he asked. How long will this last? I don't know if you've asked that at any point in the last 18 months. Like, how long are we going to keep doing this? How long is COVID going to keep wrecking us? How long are we going to still have this division and this strife and this anger and this rage and this death and this chaos? How long, oh Lord, is injustice going to continue? How long is racism going to go on? How long is oppression or sex slavery or any of the wickedness that goes on in this world going to last? How long, oh Lord? And then here's the second question. Why do you let this happen? Why in the world, God, if you are all-powerful and all-loving, would you let this happen? You know, I talk to people who are not believers, who are atheists, and again, maybe there's some of you who are there. And you ask the question, well, if God's all-loving and all-powerful, how could he let this happen? And it just stuns me that there are people who actually think that's a new question. This is the most ancient question about God. This is not some new finding of science or some new clever thing atheists or naturalists have come up with. The question of God, why would you let this happen, is older than humanity can possibly imagine. From the very beginning, Habakkuk's questions, how long, Lord, and why would you let this happen, have been asked. And the Bible wrestles with that question. And here's the Lord's answer. It might not be what you're looking for, but here's what God says in response. Verse 5, the Lord is going to answer Habakkuk. It says this, look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Now, if you pull this verse out of context and just throw it on a coffee cup, you'll think it's like this like, inspiring verse, like God's going to do great things, and amen. That is not this verse, okay? This verse is that God is about to like, bring judgment upon his people, all right? But, but, but here's what he says. Like God is going to do something you wouldn't even believe if you were told. So in other words... Here's how God responds to the two questions. Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? How long are you going to let Afghanistan, Haiti, violence, anger, rape, abuse, genocide, hunger, famine, fires, tornadoes, floods, hurricanes? How long, God? And why are you letting this happen? And here's God's response to Habakkuk. Watch how it outlines here. God's response. Number one, I see what's happening. In other words, God is not ignorant. He is not unaware of what is going on in Habakkuk's situation. He knows what is happening. Number two, I am going to do something about it. God says, watch. I am going to do something about the situation. And number three, you are going to be utterly amazed when I do. And here's what I think. I think when we look at the response to Habakkuk and his complaint We need to recognize that I believe our God says the same thing to us. Again, the prophets answer the question, what is God like? I think the answer to that question, he is the type of God who knows what's happening. So whatever thing is burdening you in the world or whatever thing is going on in your life or your family or your situation, God sees and knows what's happening. What's the next thing? God is going to do something about it. God is not just going to hold his hands back forever and just let it roll. God is going to do something about it. 
And then what's the final promise here? You are going to be utterly amazed when I do. Stand and watch what God is going to do. And again, I know there's this tension in this room because a lot of you are going, okay, there's been some problems for a long time in humanity. So what's going on here, Brian? Because it doesn't seem like God is doing anything. And I want you to see how God responds next because I think it's going to help us understand what he means. It says in verse six, he says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings, not their own. So he jumps into a conversation about the Babylonians. And he says, I'm going to raise up the Babylonians. I'm already doing it. He calls them a ruthless and impetuous people. I want to talk to you about Babylon real quick, because part of understanding the Bible, especially the Old Testament, means understanding Babylon. You may not realize this, but Babylon is actually one of the first cities referenced in the Bible. You'll not realize it because it actually gets shortened to another word, and that word is Babel of the Tower of Babel fame all the way in the beginning of Genesis. Babylon is the symbol of wickedness and evil all throughout the Bible. Even in the book of Revelation, the Babylon is used as a stand-in for the wicked empires of this world. I want you to understand where Babylon fits in the flow of biblical history. I've said this to some of you before, so bear with me, but I want us all to know this, that all throughout the Bible, there are six major empires that come up against the people of God. There are six major empires that the people of God have to contend with throughout the Bible. And I want you to remember these six because it'll help you when you're reading the Bible to place where things are at. And I want you to remember this six through a phrase that I learned in college. A college Old Testament professor taught me this. And here's the phrase. It's six words long. It says this, eat at Bill's, Pittsburgh's great restaurant. So say this with me, okay, in the room, call and response, all right? Eat at Bill's, okay, Pittsburgh's great restaurant. And if you can put that to memory, you will know the six empires of the Old Testament, or the six empires of the Bible, the six empires that the people of God had to go up against, and the six empires that shaped the biblical narrative. Because here's the six empires. Eat at Bill's, Pittsburgh's great restaurant. It's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Egypt, where the people of God are enslaved, they get out of Egypt and they set up camp and they start to build a nation and Assyria comes in and just rocks the northern part of their nation. Babylon, we'll talk about in a moment, but they come in and they're the most wicked and ruthless of every empire in the ancient world that came up against the people of God. The Babylonian empire falls to the Persians who fall to the Greeks who eventually fall to the Romans who show up in the New Testament. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And what does God say? I am raising up the Babylonians. I want you to understand how big and mighty and powerful the Babylonian Empire was. You'll see this map of the ancient Near East. And if you're not kind of sure where we are right now, here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's Egypt. Here's like Saudi Arabia, the Middle East. Here's Iran over here. This is how much they controlled. Of the known world, this was the greatest empire the world had ever seen. The Babylonians were not like a little tribe somewhere out there. They were this massive, powerful empire that God was raising up, that God says he raised up for his purposes, which actually answers this fascinating question, like what does God do in the world? Sometimes he raises up wicked empires for his purposes, not for theirs. It's actually this fascinating thing to think about that God uses Babylon in this kind of way. And here's what I think is so fascinating. I was studying it this week, just thinking, okay, like, how does this help me answer the question, like, what's God up to in this world? And how is God responding to evil? Because it seems like if God was going to respond to evil, he should have done it a long time ago. 
Because I've watched evil happen my whole life, and yet it doesn't seem like God is stepping in and changing the game right now. But then here's what I realized. Started doing some work on Babylon and realizing God was raising up Babylon. Can I give you a little historical fact? Babylon began to exist around the year 1900 B.C. This isn't like a Bible nerd scholar thing. This is just like history here, okay? So Babylon begins to exist around the year 1900 B.C. Habakkuk, who we're studying today, makes his complaint that we just read around 600 B.C. So Babylon begins to exist as this tiny little city, this tiny little village and town and kingdom in 1900 BC. Habakkuk makes his complaint around the year 600 BC, which means this, 1300 years before Habakkuk cried out, God set in motion his answer to his complaint. Isn't that amazing? That 1300 years before Habakkuk said, God, what are you going to do about this? God says, for 1,300 years, I've been raising up this nation called Babylon. Don't worry. Before you even open your mouth to cry out to me, I was answering your prayer. There's something beautiful here, that God has been working something and moving in a direction, even though Habakkuk couldn't have possibly known it. But over 1,000 years before Habakkuk cries out, God was already answering his prayer. God was already on the move. Can I put it in our situation today? Like, listen, I want you to know that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, lived, died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven in the first century AD. And then I want you to know that today, this week, with all the gnarly stuff going on in the world, that we cry out to God about injustice in the 21st century. So what does that mean? It means that 2,000 years before we cried out, God set in motion his answer to our complaint. Like 2,000 years before you cried out about Afghanistan or Haiti or COVID-19 or racism or abortion or abuse or genocide or any of the injustices that go on in this world, God had already sent Jesus into this world to make all things new. He had already sent Jesus into this world to die on a cross, raise from the dead, and set in motion the kingdom of God that would one day do away all of death and suffering. Like before you ever cried out, God was answering your prayer. He knew what you needed. He knew what was going to bother you. He knew about the injustices in the world. And before you were even born, 2,000 years before you were born, he sets in motion this plan to make all things right. It's like this. I want you to imagine this weekend I'm hanging out with my kids, and I decide on Friday night that I'm going to order pizza for the kids. Now, in my house, that would be like a huge deal, all right? And I know some of you eat healthier than me, or you would never eat pizza, but we do pizza all the time, okay? So I want you to imagine I call in the pizza, and I tell my kids, hey, guess what? Daddy ordered pizza tonight. We're having a pizza night. We're watching Toy Story, and we're eating pizza, all right? My kids would be thrilled. That would be like the best night ever. But I want you to imagine I said I'm ordering pizza, but now I'm just standing around. I'm not holding a pizza. I'm not making a pizza. What's happening? The pizza's on its way. But do my kids see me making pizza? No. In fact, in that moment, my kids just see me hanging around, sitting on the couch, walking in the backyard. That's all they see. And so the question for them really is this. Do we trust that when daddy said, I'm getting pizza for you, pizza's actually coming? Because they can't see it. They don't know that it's coming. But it is coming. And the goal for them isn't to like believe things about pizza. It's to say, if dad said pizza's coming... And I'm going to trust him because he's trustworthy and he doesn't lie to us. And I want you to know the same thing is true with God. Like if God said there's going to come a day where there's no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away, that God will make a new creation and undo all of the evil in this world. If he said that's coming, let's trust him. Let's believe him. 
Let's not for a second think that God's not going to make good on his promise. Let's not for a second think that just because there's wickedness and evil in this world, there will not come a day where God does something and we are utterly amazed. Let's not for a minute believe that there will not be a day that Jesus Christ cracks the sky and all of the kingdoms of this world, the bullies, the angry dictators, the terrible human beings of this world will see Jesus and they will weep over their sin. Like, listen, I want you to know that the delay of the return of Jesus and the new creation that is coming is not evidence that God is not going to make good on his promise. And in the midst of a world where things seem so broken and so damaged and there's so much injustice, so many horrible things happening, I want us to be a people who say, you know what, I don't know how God's going to deal with it, but he promised that he would. I don't see how God is working in this, but he said that he would. And if he said he would, I believe he will. Like, like I love how Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says it this way. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Listen, for some of you in your own life, in a situation, in some injustice you're seeing in Afghanistan or Haiti or Lebanon or any of these places all over the world, you cannot trace God's hand right now. Trust his heart. Believe that he is going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. Because our God does not lie. It goes on this way. We're going to skip down to verse 12. It says this. Habakkuk's going to complain again. And um, the, basically in between there in verse 12, God is describing uh, the people of Babylon and how vicious and brutal they are. In verse 12, Habakkuk complains again. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, the Holy One, you never die. You, my Lord, have appointed them, the Babylonians, to execute judgment. You, my rock, have, ador- have ordained them to punish your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Then why do you tolerate the treacherous? If you are silent while well, the wicked swallowed up more righteous than themselves, you have made a people like the fish of the sea, and the sea creatures have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls them up with hooks, and he catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices his net and burns incense to the dragnet, that his net lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he keeping and empty, emptying his net, destroying the nations without mercy? So there's a lot of figurative language here, but here's the basic idea. The Babylonians are like a fisher who just goes through humanity, rips everyone out of their homes, and destroys them. And Habakkuk can't stand this. He goes, you're going to use Babylon to execute your judgment? Babylon's even worse than us. Like, we're sinners. But Babylon's even worse. He goes on this way in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, But I will stand at watch, at my watch, and my station myself on the ramparts. I will look to say what, see what he will say to me and what answer he will give to my complaint. Uh, like in other words, he says, I'm going to stand on the city walls. I'm going to wait to see what God does. Like, God, I, I can't believe you're going to do this. I don't get what you're doing. I don't see what you're up to. But I'm going to watch for it. I'm going to believe that you're doing something here. And then it goes on this way in verse 3. It says, for the revelation await, or I'm sorry, verse 2. It says, the Lord replied. Like in other words, Habakkuk goes, I'm going to stand on the wall and wait for you to do something, God. And God looks down and goes, okay. And here's his response. Write down the revelation. Make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. In other words, I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Write it down. Believe it. Take it to the bank. Know what I'm going to say. And then here's what he says. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. Wait for it. And it will certainly come and not delay. Like in other words, God's like, I'm going to do something. Don't you worry, I'm going to do something. At the appointed time, I'm going to do exactly what I promised to do. And it speaks of an end and it will not prove false. God's going, listen, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. You don't have to worry about that. He says, though it lingers, wait for it. It will certainly come 
and it will not delay. Like in other words, what Habakkuk is being asked to exercise right now, what Habakkuk is being asked to do right now is to wait on the Lord to know that there is a promise of God coming, to know that God is going to deal with injustice, to know that God is going to deal with evil, and he is called to wait on the Lord. I want you to understand that waiting on the Lord and faith are nearly synonyms. That to wait on the Lord is what it means to have faith. What it means to have faith is to say, God, I know your promises will be true, and I am willing to wait for them. The person who is not willing to wait on the Lord is the person who is not willing to walk by faith. Walking by faith is the exercise of knowing that God will accomplish all he said he will, even if I don't see it right now. Like, I want to put it this way to you tonight. The faith is knowing the difference between no and not yet. That's what Habakkuk has to exercise. He has to understand the difference between God saying, no, I will not deal with that injustice, and God saying, I will, but not yet. Faith is the difference between no and not Yet, like I'll put it to you this way. Um, recently, um, it's been the summer, and so my kids have gotten really into popsicles, okay? And the most like fascinating discovery we've made as parents is called popsicle baths, okay? We throw them in the bathtub, and then they eat a popsicle. It's fascinating. My son keeps dropping the popsicle in the water, and then like licking. It's disgusting, okay? But they love popsicles. They're into popsicles. The other night, we told them they could have a popsicle. Um, And I said, you can have a popsicle. But then I was working on something, and my daughter uh, has really learned to use her voice. And so she comes up to me and goes, Dada, I want a popsicle. And I was like, yes. I said, yes. And she goes, but I want a popsicle. I want a popsicle. I want a popsicle. She does this. And if you've ever seen a three- or four-year-old, this is what they do. They repeat it over and over and over and over again until they get what they want. They just grind you down. That's what they do. This is how three-year-olds work. But you know what I've started to do? I've realized in those moments that she doesn't think she's being heard. She doesn't think it's happening. So the other night she was bothering me and bothering me and bothering me about a popsicle cone. So I got down to her level and I asked her a question, two questions. I said, Grace, Grace, what did daddy say about the popsicle? And she looks at me and smiles and says, yes. I'm like, that's right. Daddy said yes. And then I asked this question that she hates. I said, what do you need to be? She goes, patient. (laughs) How great is that? She knows that. What did daddy say? Yes. What do you need to be? Patient. If you're dealing with something in your life, in your family, looking at an injustice in this world, something you just can't stand and it's ripping you apart, can I ask you two questions tonight? As you think about the injustices, the pains, the terrible things, the violence going on in this world, two questions for you. Number one, what did God say? What did God say? God said that he will deal with it. God said he will bring judgment. God said no one will get away with wickedness on the other side of eternity. God said he will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear that in his new creation all things will be right. What did God say? He said no one's going to get away with evil. But then here's the second question. What do you need to be? And the answer is patient. It's patient. And we hate that answer just as much as my three-year-old hated the answer to be patient for her popsicle. 
But we are patient. We are people who wait. And this patience is not this kind of like, whatever, God will take care of it. It is this leaned in kind of like, I'm going to see what God's going to do. I'm going to cry out to the Lord. I'm going to not think his not yet means no. I'm going to cry out to God on behalf of a suffering world. I am not going to look at Afghanistan. I'm not going to look at Haiti. I'm not going to look at Lebanon. I'm not going to look at all of the injustices in our world and in our nation and in our church and in our community. I'm not going to look at that and just assume that God's going to take care of it so I don't need to do anything. No, I'm going to be leaned in. And here's the vision that Habakkuk gives to us. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I read this already. I want to read it to you again. It says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. In other words, what does patience look like for Habakkuk? What patience looks like is this. It is standing on the walls of Jerusalem. I want you to see this this picture here. This is a picture, a modern picture of of the ancient walls of Jerusalem. And here's what Habakkuk's going to do. He's going to climb up to the top of that wall and he's going to stand at attention. He's going to look to see what God is going to do. This is a military idea of people who would stand on the walls of the city and keep their eyes out to see who was coming next. There is a diligence, there is a discipline that comes to standing on the wall. Standing on the wall is a military act. It's not sitting back, playing cards, drinking, eating, just hanging out, just kind of not thinking. No, it is a standing at attention, saying, God, I believe you are going to do what you promised to do, but until you do, I am going to cry out on behalf of those who are suffering. Calvary Community Church, might we be a church in this season who stands on the walls and cries out to our God. Let's be a people who stand on the wall and cry out on behalf of the oppressed, of those who are being inflicted violence upon, those who are suffering, those who are hurting, those who are crying, those who are weeping, those who fear for their life tonight. Let's be a church that stands on the walls, amen? Let's be a people who cry out. Let's be a people of prayer. Let's be a people who have confidence that God will do exactly what he said he was going to do. Tonight, I want to invite us as we close to do exactly that, to be a people of prayer who cry out to the Lord and say, God, I believe you're going to do exactly what you said you're going to do. In just a moment, we're going to sing our final songs of worship. And as we do, there's a prayer wall that's open as always. Maybe you've written prayers before. Maybe you've never written a prayer before. I want to invite you tonight to go over there. You can write a prayer not only for yourself, but for the people of the world who are suffering and hurting, cry out to God. There are going to be some prayer sheets we printed out over there. If you're just looking for prayer prompts about Afghanistan and Haiti specifically, I want to just know how we're as a church praying for these countries and praying for these people. I want to invite you to grab one of those. But tonight I want to actually end with a moment of prayer of all of us together. Um, See, there are often times where I'll pray and you'll just kind of listen and sometimes you're praying along, but I actually want to invite us as a community, us as a people, to cry out to God right now. And I want us to do it in a different way than we've normally done it. And and here's how that's going to happen. I want to invite everyone across this room to stand to your feet right now. In fact, I'll even say this. If you're listening online, this might sound strange. Why don't you stand to your feet right now too and join us here in this room. And then I want to ask everyone across this room to take your hands and just put them out like this. There's a way of talking to God that curls our fist at him and shakes our fist at him. And sometimes that feels like the right thing. But we want to be a people who say, God, whatever you have for us, we trust. 
We sang earlier, I'll climb this mountain with my hands wide open. That means, God, I'm going to live this kind of life of faith where I trust you rather than holding on and trying to control you. Would you hold your hands out like this? And then here's what's going to happen over the next few moments. I'm going to read a prayer out loud. And if you in this room or you standing in your homes right now agree with that prayer, affirm that prayer, cry out to that prayer, I want you to say with all your might and with all your heart, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, hear our prayer. Let's pray together tonight, church. We pray for the situation in Afghanistan, asking that you would bring peace and protection and stability to those living there, especially to women and girls. Lord, Lord hear our prayer. We pray for the situation in Haiti, asking you that, that you would provide for every need of the people of that nation as they recover from this devastating earthquake. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for the decisive and permanent end to poverty, homelessness, hunger, famine, especially among children. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for the end of political corruption, racism, oppression, abuse, exploitation, slavery, and violence of every kind. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for relief from natural disasters like earthquakes, floods, droughts, hurricanes, tornadoes, storms, and wildfires. Lord, hear our prayer. We pray for the end of the COVID-19 pandemic and ask that you would end the chaos that is brought to our nation and to our world. We pray for your church around the world that we would be a bright light in the midst of this present darkness. Lord, we ask for a global revival with millions of men and women coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We ask for the swift return of Jesus to bring an end to sin, suffering, and death, and to judge the living and the dead. Finally, we pray for the patience and the courage and the wisdom and the power to be a faithful church until Jesus comes to take us home. Lord, hear our prayer. Father in heaven, I pray you would hear our prayer. We are a church, a people that stands on the ramparts, that stands on the walls. And God, we will give you no rest until you bring justice. No rest until you answer this prayer. We will cry out to you day and night and be a people who call upon the name of the Lord knowing that you can save. Give us the power, give us the diligence, give us the patience to be a people that pray. And in weeks like this where I feel small and unpowerful and totally incapable of doing anything about the suffering in the world, God help us to know that you are more than powerful. You are more than capable. You are more than present. You are more than sovereign. You are the God of this universe and help us cry out to you as if we actually believe it. Lord, hear our prayer as we sing to you tonight. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said real loud, 